Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. And today we've got a really special show about the bill that was just announced a couple of days ago, Representative Mike Fitzpatrick, about the medical device issuer that has been wreaking havoc in the lives of tens of thousands of women around the United States. And I've got three women who are spearheading the effort to get this legislation enacted. And their their group now has more than 24,000 people, all of whom have been suffering from the device called eSure. So today we've got Angie Fermolino, and she founded the eSure Problems Group in 2011. Uh, we've got Amanda Dykeman, and she was one of the original administrators of the group. And also Amanda Rasmussell, who is the legislative liaison for the group. I guess let's start off with just kind of talking about your each of your individual personal stories with with how you you started having problems with this and how you found each other. Uh, so I'll start with Angie because you're the one that founded the group. So what was your experience? How did you get the eShore device? And then what happened to cause you to find these women and get them all together? So I was implanted in 2009, three months after the birth of my son Elijah. Um, we decided he was going to be our last child, and my husband did not have insurance, so vasectomy was out of the question. Um, my doctor offered me a sure, told me it was quick and painless and could be done in the office, and it sounded great, and I had it done. Proceeded to have problems for the next two years, and finally went back to the doctor, and they did an ultrasound and found out my coils had expelled and were embedded in my uterus and that I would need surgery. Yikes. Uh, yeah, so I was I was kind of in shock. I didn't even know that that could happen. I came home, and I was on Facebook, and I wanted to tell people about it. I wanted to tell my friends and family members, but I wanted to keep it kind of separate from my personal page, so I saw on the side that you could start groups on Facebook. So I started a group. I named it Sure Problems and added a lot of my female friends and family members and talked about it there. I had made the group open, not really knowing much about Facebook groups, and uh strange women that I didn't know started joining and telling their experiences and their problems with Esher, and that's kind of how it began. Wow. The, the power of social media is amazing. It really yeah. is. And so Amanda Dykeman, so you were one of the original administrators of this, this group on Facebook, so you, you got in relatively early on. Tell me how, how you found your way to it. I had skipped a period and began to wonder if I could possibly be pregnant after having the Esher device implanted. So I, I began doing some research because I had been told you could never get pregnant once once your tubes were confirmed blocked. And I come across Angie's Facebook group, and lo and behold, not only had women gotten pregnant, but a lot of the symptoms matched up. You know, I had noticed some bloating and chronic fatigue and migraines and joint pain, back pain, <laughs> abdominal pain. I was like, wow, you know, okay. Maybe I'm not crazy. There is really something going on here. And right. Yeah. You know, her group has definitely been instrumental to um, creating awareness of the dangers of the Esher. Most definitely. And it's uh, it's just amazing to me that it takes a grassroots effort like this for uh, any government entity to, you know, admit that there's any problem with it. Amanda Rasmussell, so you, uh, you joined the group in 2013, but it sounds like you had about five years of problems between the time you got Esure and the time that you found the group. Tell me a little bit about your story. I um, had Esure implanted in 2008. Um, mm -hmm. It was probably the most painful thing I've ever been through, and I've had really big babies, and I had um, spine surgery. This is the worst thing I've ever been through. 
I had it implanted. Um, I was on pain pills for 10 days afterwards. And then over the next 18 months, I started um, to have debilitating bleeding and I could, I couldn't stand up. I mean, it was just impacting every part of my life. And so I went to my doctor and I said, you know, you've got to do something. And he said, you're my only patient, which by the way, I've since I've found about seven people on our board that were his patients. And he said, I was getting older. I was about 37 at the time. And I demanded he do something. I said, I can't live like this. I can't go to work. So I had a total hysterectomy. And I always thought my body failed me a little bit. And so then I we were cooking Thanksgiving dinner. And we saw this little bleep. I mean, it was like a, a minute on our local news. And it talked about the Easter Problems Group. And my, the first thing my husband said, I've never seen him so angry, turned to me and said, I guess you're not the only one, are you? And I joined. And there were like around 2,000 people at the time when I joined the group. Wow. The device was approved, I guess, in 2002 by the FDA. So it's been on the market for 13 years now. And what are what are the causes of these symptoms? What is it about the device that, that causes these problems in women? Oh my God, there's, there's so many different causes and so many different problems. I mean, I guess we could start with the basic ones that the, even the manufacturer admits, the nickel allergy. There's a outer coil and an inner coil. The outer coil is nitinol, which is a nickel titanium alloy. And a good percentage of the population is allergic to nickel. So having a device implanted in you permanently that has nickel in it that you're allergic to obviously is going to cause some problems. So that's, that's one of the main problems that women deal with. Um, another would be foreign body reaction, just just your body's natural um, ability to want to fight and attack something that's foreign in it, especially in a woman's fallopian tubes that are there to push things out. Probably another problem would be the autoimmune reactions that women are having because of the device, mm-hmm. you know, for the same reasons. Yeah, the migrations and the perforations, the coils are not staying in place. They're migrating through the tubes and into different areas of the body. The physicians, as they're placing them or as they migrate, are perforating through different organs. You know, the PET fibers that are wrapped around the inner coil, the inner stainless steel coil, come with a warning that we've seen they're not permanently supposed to be implanted in the human body. So we believe, you know, obviously the materials are causing a huge um, reaction. I mean, the the purpose of the PET fibers is to cause chronic inflammation. That's supposed to be the mechanism of action here, that these fibers cause chronic inflammation in the tubes, which causes the body to grow the scar tissue, which then blocks the tube and renders you sterile. But the problem is, is if these PET fibers get out of the fallopian tubes, whether through a perforation or an expulsion or migration, or if they fracture during, during improper removal, these PET fibers then get into the abdominal cavity where it's causing adhesions. You know, we've had so many women being diagnosed with pelvic adhesive disorder or, you know, their bladder is fused to their, you know, their bowels or this is fused to that. So we're seeing like a spider web of scar tissue just growing because of the device itself being, you know, either in the wrong place or these PET fibers getting out and migrating. That's been my personal experience. You know, when I had the Esher coils placed, uh, I, within a few months, began to bloat so badly, people would ask me if I was pregnant. You know, with that taking a toll on my self-esteem, along with the physical problems I had with the device and pain, I desperately seek the hysterectomy to try and reverse this. 
And um, so I had a hysterectomy in 2013, and unfortunately that didn't take everything away. I'm still left with the bloating, the severe bloating due to adhesions all over my abdomen. And and nickel is, it's an extremely common allergen. I'm allergic to nickel. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it would just stand to reason that if they're uh, inducing uh, chronic inflammation and if they're implanting something that is uh, highly allergenic, that it's going to cause problems. So what was the FDA approval process for this like to, to get it on the market? The FDA panel that approved the device did not even have the packet regarding the pet fibers right in front of them. They, they did not review any of the data. The um, FDA, the higher-ups of the FDA had reviewed it and approved it, but no one that recommended the approval of the device had that information in front of them. And everything that we get is completely redacted, so we can't even get that information. We don't know what the studies looked like. We don't know what they tested for. We don't know the biocompatibility results. We have no idea. That information is not available to us. Yeah, and so you guys initially went through the FDA. I mean, you, you reported, and there are more than 5,000 complaints directly to the FDA. And what was the process? Uh, what were you met with when you approached them directly? They were a little standoffish at first, um, and I think the more pressure we put on them, I think they felt more and more obligated that they needed to appease us. Mm-hmm. So we, we've had several meetings with them. Our first was a phone conference, um, gosh, I think in 2013, where some of the admins got on a phone conference with like three people from the FDA, and we read this information to them. They weren't allowed to answer any questions. All they could do was basically give us an audience. So nothing came of that meeting. Then we had a, a second meeting where five of us went and sat in a room full of FDA people. There was about 30 of them there, and we, again, presented information and had a little bit of conversation that went back, back and forth, and nothing came of that. But then finally the FDA called this hearing on September 24th, and that was a little more, um, I would say, uh, acceptable. You know, it was, it was good to have a panel of experts there asking them some serious and some hard questions. So what happened during that uh, that public meeting? Was there any outcome from that? Was there any sort of resolution or next steps that were decided from that initial hearing? Not yet. I mean, the panel um, the panel deliberated at the end. We were allowed to speak during the public comment section. We were each given three minutes. So after Bayer presented, we each had our three minutes, and then the FDA panel kind of talked and did their questions and everything and had some deliberations. Then they made suggestions to the FDA. Now the FDA has to sit with those suggestions and determine what they're going to do with them, if anything. We don't have a time frame. We don't know when they're going to, you know, come up with any answers. And even if they do, they are only suggestions to Bayer, and then Bayer determines what they do with the FDA's suggestions. Okay, so Bayer is the manufacturer, and what is their role in this? I mean, since it's been approved by the FDA, is it is it a matter of now Bayer is the person who's putting it on the market, and since it's been approved, they can kind of do whatever they want unless legislation dictates otherwise? They would have no reason to do anything about it right now. Mm-hmm. They are shielded. They are protected with PMA. Um, and I think that it, it, it's going to take legislation to get anything done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Amanda Rasmussen, you're the yeah. um, legislative liaison. So tell me, what is the legislative process uh, as far as working around the FDA um, and as far as getting this bill introduced? 
Well, we have had several trips to D.C. Um, over the last couple of weeks. We um, went up one day that was organized by another group and went around and met aides to certain um, senators and legislators and then had a meeting with um, Human Norchasm, and he um, has a good relationship with Congressman Fitzpatrick. I sat down and told him a lot about the stories and our, our group and things like that. And he then reached out, Fitzpatrick's office reached out to us and said they wanted to help. And they put together the E-Free Act, which basically um, will remove, revoke PMA, which is uh, pre-market approval that the FDA gave to um, this product. And it, it kind of shields the company from any lawsuit. So basically, we are civil rights have been violated because we do not have due process. Sure. And so so all of the women who have had these problems, who have ended up having uh, long-term permanent problems and injuries, none of you have the ability to sue Bayer because of this pre-market approval. Is that correct? Preemption is granted to devices that are class three. And class three devices are normally reserved for life-saving devices. So why Esure, a birth control device, went through the pre-market approval process and was granted a class three status and is now preempted from litigation is beyond any of us. We, we don't understand how that possibly happened. And it was expedited, expedited review. It wasn't just, you know, um, they say it's supposed to be the most stringent testing. There's no way that they could have tested this. The first trial for the design, the final design that the company used, did not start till like the year 2000. And then all of a sudden, 2002, they're getting expedited review. It was not tested long enough on a sufficient amount of women to be deemed safe. When when Conceptus presented at the pre-market approval meeting in 2002, they had five women that had been followed for 36 months. They based their approval on that. Wow. Five yeah. women. So how does this process compare to, say, an IUD? I mean, Esure is permanent, and an IUD is something that is, is, is removable, but, I mean, women seem to have more recourse with a temporary device that's embedded than they do with a permanent device. How did that happen? How did it get expedited approval? Has there ever been an explanation for that? I mean, it's a, it's a permanent, not, and they say it's non-surgical, but I mean, it's somewhat of a surgical procedure for them to, uh, even though they don't put you under anesthesia, for them to install it at all. That's another problem right there. Um, we have been told by doctors that his, hysteroscopy, which is the way they place the device, absolutely is a surgical procedure. And this was brought up at the FDA meeting in September, that this is a surgical procedure. It's billed and it's coded as a surgical procedure. And not only that, 50% of the women that get sure are put under general anesthesia. Really? So, yeah, and they're, they're advertising it as non-surgical and in-office, yet half the people are put under, and it's billed and it's coded as surgical. Their very first brochure that came out on this product said non-incisional, and then later they changed it to non-surgical. And I don't know how they got the FDA to grant them the proper authority to change it to, to advertise as non-surgical, but that's, a, that's one of the fights that we're up against is that they're, they're falsely advertising this device. And I was awake during my procedures, but I had it in an outpatient surgery center, but I was awake. So what they're saying about it being implanted in doctor's offices, that's, that's not normally the case. 
about half of the half of the time it is is that it is so painful that the doctors that have common sympathy for their patients decided they didn't like doing that. They didn't like doing it in the office because it is a very painful procedure. And so they just switched back over to do it in operating rooms so the patient was knocked out and didn't have to, you know, go through that. I had it done in office, and it took an hour, and it was the most painful thing I've ever endured. Wow. We were duped, Shannon. Um, we were told that once the devices were confirmed to be in place that we would never, I mean, in writing, we would never have to worry about unplanned pregnancy again. That was a lie. Uh, we were told that because Esher does not contain hormones, that there would be no side effects, also a lie. And, uh, you know, the whole non-surgical thing, Dr. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce his last name, Dr. Edio Zampaglion, Bears Rep, is said on camera that it is a surgical procedure, a hysteroscopic procedure of this nature is surgical. And, you know, it, how many women have to be harmed for action to be taken? I mean, we're at 24,000 women on the page already. Do we need 50,000, 100,000? It's, it's ridiculous. And that's just the women who know of the group who have found it on Facebook. I mean, that, you know, surely there are as many as times as this device has been implanted. There are probably at least double or triple that out there who aren't aware of of the problems, which is, you know, hopefully this show and and other media attention that you're getting will educate people and let them know because I've I've had friends personally whose doctors have recommended this to them as if it's no big deal. I mean, come in, get this, you'll be fine. It's the best thing on the market. And they are never warned about any side effects whatsoever. I also think it needs to be noted, too, that this is impacting women of all ages. We have women in their early 20s who are done having kids and are having hysterectomies, and it's like no big deal. And also, you know, they say, like, you you're, you get it out and you're fine, and then you start having more problems. Like, I have a friend in our group who's having getting ready to have major surgery again because her bladder is severely prolapsed because there's no organs to hold it up anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. I think... This is like, and it's financially impacting families are having to make tough decisions whether they're going to have these surgeries or not. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just not okay. And one of the women at our, the, on our recent DC trips, she said the perfect thing. Somebody asked her how she felt about Easter. She said, I've been hustled. I feel like I've mm-hmm. been in a used car lot and I've been hustled by somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. She was so right. I was hustled by my doctor. But the doctors are in turn hustled by the reps. Yeah. That is, it's so amazing that a that a, a corporate manufacturer can have can have such impact on the medical issues of of so many thousands of women out there. And I mean, a hysterectomy is a major surgery. It affects your circulatory system. It affects your hormones. It affects your quality of life. Uh, you, you know, like you said, organs can move around. I mean, it's you know, people say, oh, well, if you weren't going to have kids anymore anyway, go ahead and have a hysterectomy. But it's, I mean, it's made it majorly impacts a woman's body and Absolutely. causes health problems. Uh, you know, I mean, it puts you into menopause 30 years early for these women yeah. who are in their 20s. I understand some people have even <coughs> died from this procedure. One of our admins of our Colorado page passed away after her removal surgery. So that hit home hard because, you know, obviously many of us knew her, you know, through through conversations on Facebook and everything. Um, there's five reports on the MAUD database of um, babies, unborn babies, being lost because of the device. And a couple of those women are in our group, so we knew them personally as well. And we've had to watch them 
hold funerals and get caskets and bury those little ones. You know, they they would make it to six, seven, eight, eight months, and the coil would rupture the amniotic sac and put them into preterm labor, and the babies just weren't mature enough to sustain life. It's been hard, you know. We we wake up every single day and sit and just scroll through the posts on the page, and every day something brings you to tears because it's devastating. You know, this is devastating people's lives. Adverse event reports that I saw of deaths in adult women, uh, the first one was um, from septic shock, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, she went in a couple of weeks after implantation, and, and her um, reproductive organs were found to be necrotic. And uh, she died basically of toxic shock syndrome, is what it said. Mm-hmm. Um, the next adverse event report, um, the woman actually died on the table during insertion um, as they perforated the uterus. We're seeing the deaths. We don't even know if they've all been reported accurately. The amount of adverse event reports that have been reported, there are physicians out there that are still saying that, you know, our group is the minority. People shouldn't let the the minority take away the benefits of the majority. But, you know, I would really like to know when and where in America did it become okay to accept the sacrifice of a minority of unsuspecting women simply for the sake of convenience and for birth control. It's birth control, you know, yank it from the market. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, these are, it's as if they're saying that the pain and suffering that you guys are, are experiencing and the ends of deaths that are happening that just because it is a minority number that it's completely inconsequential when that's, that's not medicine. I mean, medicine is to, to save lives and to, to improve lives. And the purpose of birth control is to improve lives so that you don't have adverse complications from unplanned pregnancies and whatnot. Right. And I think the worst part of it is it's not that it's inconsequential. It's acceptable. They're saying that this is acceptable, that they know what's going on and they understand and we took that risk. You know what? We didn't take that risk. We didn't know. We weren't told up front that, hey, one in eight of you isn't going to get proper placement. And if you don't get proper placement, this, this, and this could happen. The brochure does not say any of this. Who is one of their loved ones or family members? Is it still going to be acceptable? Exactly. We're reaching out. A lot of times when you start having these problems, of course, like when I had my problem, I mean, my mom said to me, like, you know, women have problems as they get older. But then she began to see that this was, like, not normal. Like, it, it brings you to your knees. I mean, and yeah. it, it, it's so many things. Like, there's a woman in North Carolina now who got pregnant, and the coils have nicked the sack of the baby. And so she's been in the hospital for, like, a couple of weeks. They're trying to get her to term. And the scary thing about the whole thing is you don't know how this is impacting the baby. You don't, the doctors there don't know a thing about Esher. They don't know. They're trying to tie, like, they want to tie her tubes off with the coils inside of it. They just don't know anything about it. There's no protocol. That's one of the things that came up with the FDA. Yeah. So what is the training? What I mean, what is the training process for these doctors who are implanting this device? What do, what kind of certification do they have to have in order to install it? 
That's a great question. <laughs> they, they claim to have a, you know, a great training program where they proctor these doctors and the doctors are supposed to do a minimum of five implantations with a rep in the room before they are signed off on. Um, but we're not seeing that happen. And a few of the doctors that we talked to said that doesn't happen at all. And often the reps that come in the room are these young college age kids that aren't doctors. And recently, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Cafe Pharma boards, but there's these these boards where reps go and talk to each other. When Bayer took over Conceptus, they were they had no idea that training was a part of their job and that these reps were going to have to be in the room with these doctors telling them what to do. And they were all, like, mortified that this was happening, that this was going to be part of their new job. Wow. Wow. And, and, and all the while, the company knows that they can't be sued. So if they change protocol in the middle or, or change the information they're giving to doctors, they know there are going to be no repercussions. Right. right. As far as this legislation that Representative Mike Fitzpatrick has, has just uh, released, tell me about the bill and what the bill will do if it passes. Well, the bill basically will revoke the PMA from Esher, just this device, mm -hmm. um, with the goal of being able to go to court and let the courts decide based on the facts in the case. Yeah, it'll it'll bring it'll bring Esher down if we can go into litigation and, and they start having to you know settle some of these cases. It's it's going to get Esher off the market, which is our ultimate goal. But before we reach that goal, we need to get the PMA lifted so that some of these women can get some financial assistance to get the medical care that they need because so many of them need surgeries and have lost their jobs. Some are losing homes, marriages. I mean, things are falling apart out here and, and they need some assistance and lifting the PMA would, would help them recover. Would it retroactively uh, go into effect so that women who have previously been harmed before the bill passes uh, would be able to bring about uh, lawsuits, or would it only be for people harmed after the passing of the bill? From what we understand, that is a court's decision, and that is what we would be asking for. Yeah, we, we asked for that to be included in the bill, but it became more of a, a legal question that, that the courts would have to decide. So we hope that that would happen. So is there any legal precedence for revocation of this uh, pre-market authorization, or is this kind of a, a pioneer legislation that's coming out right now? We're going to make history. If this happens, we're going to make history with this. Absolutely. You reached out to Mike Fitzpatrick and that his office then reviewed everything and, and called you back. But what initially made you uh, make contact with him? What, what brought him on board, and how did you connect with him? Human, um Norchasm is friends with Fitzpatrick. And when we were at the FDA meeting in September, he introduced Fitzpatrick's rep to us, Justin Rusk. And I had a pile of letters with me that I had brought because I had asked women, if you cannot come to the FDA meeting, send me your letters and I will hand deliver them to the FDA for you. So I had this pile of letters. And when Human brought over Justin Rusk and introduced us, I handed them to Justin. And I said, take these back to the congressman and tell him to read them. And I think that sparked a, a, a big interest from Congressman Fitzpatrick. That's wonderful. And so uh, there was a, a press conference. What response, if any, has there been to the announcement that he's brought this bill before Congress? We've had a lot of interest, actually. Um, we are reaching women who are suffering. We have been now reaching out to um, different uh, representatives in the um, House. And representatives are like, oh, yes, I've heard about that. 
the bill now has three co-sponsors. So um, we're, we're hoping to get as many more co-sponsors as we can before it gets to committee. So yeah. what is the committee? What is the committee process? We are looking to get as many co-sponsors as possible on this bill. Um, it is bipartisan right now, and we're looking to, you know, increase those numbers. Um, and that's why we're actively reaching out to people and meeting with them. And I mean, our members are going out to their district offices, and everybody's taking a, a role in this. So for the women out there who are hearing this broadcast and and encountering the articles and who have been suffering from this or who know someone who has, how can they connect with you guys uh, to to become part of this network and find out how to reach out to their their Congress people and their local legislators? Come to the Facebook page. We can guide you. You know, besides the Facebook page, we have a website, esureproblems.webs.com, and we have a form letter already written, a template that they can just copy and paste, go to their congressperson's website, paste it there, and send it. You know, and then if they want to set up a meeting and go talk to their, their rep in person, we're happy to get on the phone with them and to tell them what to say. We've already got a packet that they can print off. We have a PDF in our files on our website and on our Facebook page. They can print it off and bring this packet and deliver it. You know, and it's best for them to reach out to the health aide at the office because that's the person that they need to be speaking to. But any guidance that they need, they can just reach out right on the page to any one of our admins. There's 14 admins, and we're all very willing to help them, you know, make that contact and tell them. Okay, so they just go to Facebook and type in eShore Problems, and the group will come up in a search? Yep, Yep. that's our Facebook page. And then our website is eshoreproblems.webs.com. Most of the action happens on Facebook, so get yourself a Facebook page and join us there. Sure, and I'm sure there are a lot of doctors out there, too, who have had, you know, personal experiences with patients who have had these problems who they might not know because they haven't, you know, received information about all of the issues that are happening because, you know, you guys have kind of been stonewalled. So unless someone's hearing about it from the press or directly from uh, a patient who's been harmed who has connected with you, uh, there are probably a bunch of gynecologists out there who are really unaware of the depth and the magnitude of this problem. Up until recently, I mean, finally, some medical journals are, pub, you know, there are some published articles coming out uh, against eShore. So that's fabulous because that's really what the doctors, that's really what the FDA, that's what they want to see. They want to see these medical journals. And um, three of them that came out recently against eShore have been very, very powerful. So that's been um, on our side as well. And a few of the doctors in our group are starting to publish articles and get more information out into the medical journals for us. So that's very, that's been very important. Excellent. And so as far as the, the FDA following up, I mean, I know you've got the legislation is, is one avenue that's going, and then you've got the FDA avenue going on kind of a, a parallel effort to, to try to get them to, to revoke or at least to, to review uh, what, what can be done about this device. If someone wants to help, can they contact the FDA? Should they file a complaint? How do they file a complaint with the FDA? Oh, that's that's fairly easy. Um, there's a there's an app called MedWatcher, or you can do it online at MedWatcher.org. They've made it very simple to file an adverse event report, and we have instructions on our page as well that can walk you right through it if you feel uncomfortable doing it on your own. Um, but the process has been made so much easier by MedWatcher for filing an adverse event report with the FDA. So we suggest going that route, um, and it only takes a couple of minutes, and it's so very important that 
everyone harmed by a medical device or a drug file an adverse event report because that's the only way the FDA knows what's going on out here in the real world. You guys want this device completely taken off the market. Um, Is is there any talk from the manufacturer about making changes or is it kind of an all or nothing? I mean, it sounds like the the way the device is made and the materials that it's used and the process biologically that it's supposed to cause, there's really no way to fix it. I mean, is is that right? Like, is there there's no modification to the device that's going to make it more safe? Not in my opinion. No. No. Um, we're getting a little pushback from some people saying that we are looking to um, to limit women's rights. That is not our goal at all. We all agree, you know, we should have a women's right to safe and effective birth control. But this is not safe and effective. I mean, that this is not a political issue for us. This is about health. This is about safety. This is about the way it was brought on. It is not okay. And so that is what we're looking to do. Absolutely. We're not we're not anti birth control. We're pro safe and effective birth control. Sure. Abs- I mean, if you were anti birth control, you wouldn't have gotten the device in the first place. Right. I mean, this is uh, the women's rights aspect of this is for women to be informed. And it just seems like a completely nonpartisan issue that everyone could get behind. And I'm. It, it surprises me that people think that you're trying to, to limit options. I mean, you're, you're trying to save women's lives here uh, from yeah. my perspective. Basically, the reason that that that's become an issue is um, like an organization, for example, like Planned Parenthood, who does not perform any type of surgeries, has never had an option for permanent sterilization in their practice up until Esher. They can do this in their practice, in the office, and sterilize people. They are saying that if we take this away, that, that we're taking away that option for those women. So that's kind of why it's under fire, because right. it's it's the only option for an organization like that. But the only problem with that is if Planned Parenthood is implanting women with Esure and they have a problem and they need surgery to have it removed, Planned Parenthood can then no longer help them because they cannot perform that surgery to remove it. And also, I'd like to point out that there was another product on the market. And that um, do you, Amanda, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, the Adiana was a uh, device that was uh, manufactured by a company called Hologic. And uh, the manufacturers of Esher actually took them to court during patent litigation. So, you know, there was another option. But leaving Esher on the market, I believe, will seriously decrease the chances of any more development or sales of these other options because they run on corporate greed. You know, they had this other device taken off of the market because they wanted to be the only available option. Well, the Mm -hmm. judge himself that looked over that case recognized the advantages that Adiana had over Esure. Now, I believe that Adiana does have its own set of risks, but, you know, the judge saw the advantage of not having metal implanted inside of women or having organs perforated with a metal cork-like screw in the middle of your uterus. You know what I'm saying? Like, he saw the advantages of it and they took our option away. So, you know, leaving Esher on the market is really just going to limit our choices here. (laughs) And so it comes back that we're not the ones limiting choices. We Our group runs the gamut from the far left to the far right and everything in between. Our Mm -hmm. women are so diverse. I mean, it's amazing to me how much we've come together. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's really, it's really just quite shocking to me that that after all of this, that anyone is still fighting for this to be on the market, and and I, I hope that this process is expedited at the very, very minimum. If they, if they for some reason won't take it off the market, to inform every single woman of every possible side effect right. they could possibly have, because you guys were going into this blind, like you said, you you feel like yeah. you were duped. Yeah. And also, like, that it's under PMA. I mean, that should be in your form. I personally think that should be in your form of consent. I would never, if I knew what I knew now, I would have been like, you're crazy. You're going to take that, you don't even get near me. And yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is that we're not being, there's no informed consent going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that is. I, I'm I'm sorry that all of you guys are have experienced this, but I, uh, I I'm sure that these now almost twenty five thousand women out there appreciate that you're so willing to fight for it and be open about it and to yeah. give so much of your time and energy toward. You can't right the wrong, but at least toward you know saving other women from potentially yeah. having having these these problems and and I know there are thousands of women out there who have had this and who have had no issues but I mean a lot of people don't know they have autoimmune issues or a nickel allergy until they get it in and then it's too late because the only way to take it out is permanent sterilization right you have to have a hysterectomy yeah pretty much I think I think the the greatest thing that I've been watching recently is how this is growing all over the world. We just set up a page for Australia. The other night we set up a page for Sweden. We've got Finland. We've got Italy. We've got countries, other countries, forming groups against Desure problems. So this is worldwide. I mean, it's been huge here in the U.S. for four years now, this fight. But this fight has taken um, massive strides across the world. And I think it's really important because... One of the reasons why they pushed this out so quickly, um, especially coming from Dr. Karen, who was the lead clinical trial investigator in Australia, I mean, he stated this is this is about population control. This is the World Health Organization trying to find a way to sterilize women in third world countries that's that's non in, you know non surgical. So you know we're, we're trying to protect women everywhere. This isn't just about the United States. This is about women everywhere, and it doesn't matter what class, you know, how much money you have. Everyone's life is important. Sure, most definitely. And if they're looking for population control, I mean, right. if they're looking for other non-surgical options, let there be more R and D. Let there be more companies right. coming up with with options, like you said. And uh, why has it always been the women, the woman's responsibility? You know, a, a vasectomy is hardly ever covered under any insurance policy, yet Esure is covered by, you know, almost every insur insurance policy. Why don't the men step up? That's, that's you know, that can be done in office, maybe. But I also think, too, like, my husband went to get a vasectomy, but he does have an autoimmune disease, and we decided that it was safer for me to do this since it was mm -hmm. put him under general, right. and it's harder for him to heal. So, it, get, it still it still goes back to the manufacturer, and he still yeah. says to this day, "I should have had it done." Well, how would you have known? I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, and, and hopefully, yeah. we can give some twenty twenty vision on the front end of this for for a lot of people. Well, thank yeah. you guys so much for taking the time to come and, and talk to me today. I'm sure all of my listeners out there are going to be 
interested in this and hopefully they'll share this with their mothers and daughters and friends and aunts and uncles uh, to get, you know, word out just about the risks. I mean, every woman can, can make the decision for herself and, you know, uh, up until the time that whatever does or doesn't happen with the FDA uh, and, you know, the product on the market. But at the very minimum right now, everyone needs to know uh, all of the potential issues. So thank you guys so much, Amanda, Amanda and Angie. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate your time and, and I, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.